Turn with me in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations chapter 1. We'll be studying this morning from verses 1 through 11. Last week we kind of introduced our study on the series of Lamentations to see a little bit of what this book is about. And today we're going to jump into this first section of the book. And as we jump into Lamentations chapter 1, what we need to understand is that this was a lament, a a funeral dirge, if you will, that was written after the devastation that took place when the city of Jerusalem fell in 586. And so the whole city was trampled, raised, burned to the ground, essentially, by the Babylonian invaders. And Lamentations chapter 1 provides an up-close and personal description of what that devastation looked like. And for us, as we study through Lamentations chapter 1, it's not only a description of what took place at the fall of Jerusalem in 586, It's also for us a reminder of the complete and utter devastation that always results from sin. You see, really, Lamentations chapter 1 is a graphic depiction of the dire consequences that sin will have in our life. So with that in mind, look with me at Lamentations chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 11. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wondering all the precious things that were hers from days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. 
O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Now as we embark on this study of Lamentations, and particularly Lamentations chapter 1, it's absolutely imperative that we understand something of the nature of sin. In fact, really, we need to understand the nature of sin to understand anything in this world. To understand the very world we live in, we have to understand sin. The, the real cause of societal woes, it's sin. The, the, the pain of this fallen world, it can be diagnosed going all the way back to the entrance of sin in this world. So too, if we as believers want to understand the message of the gospel, we need to understand sin. The wages of sin is death. We deserve death. Which is why Jesus had to die for our salvation. If you as a believer really want to understand anything of true biblical theology, you have to understand something of the nature of sin. Biblical doctrine will not make any sense to you unless you understand what sin is. The, the, the fact that you could have nothing to do with your salvation only makes sense if you understand the nature of sin. Furthermore, to understand the Christian life, you have to understand sin. We're in a daily battle. And the daily battle is a battle with sin and unbelief. If you don't understand that, you're going to buckle under the pressure of this life. It's so important for us to understand sin. Parents, you need to understand sin. You cannot Raise your child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If you do not understand something of the nature of sin, your child is not throwing a temper tantrum. They're rebelling in sin against you and against the Lord. That's why you need to discipline them. If you don't understand the nature of sin, you're not going to understand any of that. Discipline of a child is not just to control them, although that is nice, isn't it? Discipline of a child is to teach them that there are consequences to sin. If you as a parent don't understand that, you're going to have trouble in your own life and you're going to have a lot of trouble with your kids. We have to understand sin. And we in particular must understand the consequences of sin. Sin has awful consequences. Sin has eternal consequences. And not just eternal consequences in hell, but even in this life, there are sorrowful consequences to leading a life of sin. We need to understand those consequences. And, and when we do, when we understand the consequences of sin, it helps us to accept the instruction that we receive from God's law, doesn't it? When I tell my kids, don't stick a metal fork in an electrical outlet, that's for their good, right? If they choose to disobey, they will bear the consequences. 
God has not given us His law in some kind of arbitrary way. It's not like God's rules are, are, are arbitrary and chosen out of nothing. They're chosen to reflect His holiness and they're communicated for our good. God doesn't command us in these ways because He's a stick in the mud who doesn't want us to have fun. He commands us in these ways because He understands the glory and the beauty and the joy of holiness and He understands the dire and devastating consequences of sin. We've got to understand sin's consequences if we're going to understand what to do with God's commands. So too, we need to understand sin's consequences if we're going to acknowledge our need for daily repentance. It is so easy to sin and then spin your mind trying to make excuses for that sin, isn't it? I know I shouldn't have done this, but how many times have you thought that before? How many times have you thought that today? When you understand the consequences of sin, it drives you not to justify your sin, but to repent of it and run from it. The more you justify that sin, the deeper you're going to go into it, and the more dangerous it becomes. And so too, we need to understand the consequences of sin to help us appreciate the grace of God in our life. We are going to go, Lamentations chapter 1 is an acrostic. Each verse in Lamentations chapter 1 begins with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. From A to Z, the Lamentations chapter 1 in this poem, it is explaining to us the consequences of sin. We're going to go one verse at a time, and these consequences for sin are going to pile on top of us. And the more we see the dire and devastating consequences of sin, the more it drives us back to appreciate and receive God's grace, doesn't it? When you understand that each and every one of us here today is a sinner who deserves every last one of the consequences that's revealed in this chapter, and yet instead we receive blessings in Christ Jesus because of His death and resurrection, that deepens our understanding of grace, doesn't it? You can't understand grace unless you understand sin and its consequences. And by the way, understanding the consequences of sin helps us to avoid making provision for the flesh, doesn't it? We automatically and intuitively know how to make provision for the flesh. In other words, you know something's wrong so you don't do it, but just in case you change your mind later, you leave the possibility of that sin open to you. So I know I have the trouble with this sin, with, with looking at this, and so I'm not going to commit that sin, but this thing that I've been looking at, I'm also not going to get rid of it. I'm just going to hide it away somewhere in the house. What are you doing? You're making a provision for the flesh. You're making sure that if you choose to change your mind, that that sin will still be an option for you later. That's what it means to make a provision for the flesh. When you understand how devastating sin is in a person's life that guards you from making provision for the flesh and so a true grasp especially of the consequences of sin it's so important because it equips us to resist temptation and to seek god's grace in our life and in that regard, Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 is very helpful for us. It is very instructive for us, especially on the consequences of sin. You see, these verses 
Essentially what they do is they put a spotlight on Jerusalem immediately after its destruction to show us just how devastating it was for Jerusalem to pursue other things beside God. It's essentially saying, here's a spotlight on what happened to Jerusalem. This is where sin will lead you. Really, by implication, Lamentations chapter 1 is a warning for each and every one of us. It's a warning for us. If you're here today and, and you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, if you've never submitted your life to Christ and put your faith in His work, His death, His resurrection, if you have not bowed the knee of your life to Him as Lord, this chapter serves as a warning to you. This is what you can expect for all of eternity. These are the eternal consequences of sin. And you don't want nothing to do with it. You need to turn and repent and believe in Christ Jesus before this is your eternity. You say, well, I have put my faith in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He has taken away the eternal consequences of sin from you. You have that assurance. However, however, just because we have the eternal consequences of sin taken away by the work of Christ doesn't mean that there won't be temporal consequences in this life if we choose sin. You can be a believer in Christ Jesus who, who is justified and in a, a position, a saved position, and yet if you choose to pursue sin, then in this life, in this age, you will still bear the consequences of your sin. This is a warning to us all. Now what the prophet does here is the prophet shines a spotlight on Jerusalem and then he personifies Jerusalem as if she was a bereft mourning widow. A widow who has lost everything. We're going to see a widow who has not only lost her husband, but a widow who has lost her family, a widow who has lost her children, a widow who has lost her possessions, a widow who has lost her own home. She's a widow sitting in a heap where her life used to be, but nothing is left. And the prophet does this to make us feel the weight of sin in our own lives. You may not realize it yet, but if you are pursuing sin rather than pursuing Christ, this is where you are headed. These are the consequences that you will face if you choose sin over Christ. In particular, Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1-11 through 11, outlines 11 consequences of sin for us. 11 devastating consequences of sin. Now, just note this. These 11 consequences, they don't exhaust every possible consequence of sin that there might be. Additionally, not everyone will experience these consequences in the same way and in the same timing. But be assured of this. This list that the prophet gives us, it accurately depicts where sin will eventually leave you if you follow its path. And, and we see the first of these consequences right in verse 1. Verse 1, we are reminded that sin 
will leave you cursed. Sin will leave you cursed. Look at verse 1. It begins, how lonely sits the city. And that first word, how, in the Hebrew language, it is an emotive expression of sorrow and lament. You can imagine this poor bereft widow screaming through her tears, how could this happen? How? She's utterly shocked as she looks around because what does she see? Well, she's shocked at her solitude. Look, the city that was full of people, how lonely it sits. There's total solitude. She's alone as she bears the consequences of her sin. She's also shocked at the absolute sadness of the whole thing. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations. She, she used to be joyful in her sins. And everything seemed to be going so great. But now she not only finds herself alone, but she finds herself in utter sadness. And in addition to the sadness, she looks around and says, she who was a princess amongst the provinces has become a slave. It's servitude. Everything's been taken from her. In fact, if you think about it, what Jerusalem experienced was a total reversal of fortunes. Total reversal. She went from being full to empty. She went from being fruitful to barren. And she went from being prominent to being a slave. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. Here was the reversal. She went from blessed to cursed. That's what happened. You see, because of the covenant blessings of God, Jerusalem and all of Israel at one time had been a world superpower. They had experienced all the spiritual blessings of receiving truth from God, and along with that came temporal blessings. They were a great and prosperous kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 4 says, in verse 20 and 21, it says, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now, in Lamentations chapter 1, what's going on? The exact opposite. Now, Judah was reduced to a lonely heap of despair, sitting in the midst of total destruction. They had been under the covenant blessings of God, but now, because they pursued sin rather than the Lord, now they were enduring the covenant curse of exile. They rejected their covenant Lord. They rejected His covenant stipulations. And now they faced the covenant curses for their rebellion. And this, by the way, it shouldn't have come as a surprise. This is exactly what God warned the people of in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In fact, if you want to do a little extra credit homework, I mean, we're not grading, so extra credit really doesn't do much good for you. But if you want to do some homework on your own, you go home and read through Deuteronomy 28, very long chapter. 
You read through Deuteronomy 28 and then you compare Lamentations with Deuteronomy 28. And what you'll find is that all the curses that were warned of in Deuteronomy 28, they are experienced in the book of Lamentations. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 65 says this, Among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Sounds a lot like what this widow is doing in her mourning, doesn't it? Or how about this? Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. That's exactly what happened in the book of Lamentations, isn't it? See, what's going on in Lamentations chapter 1 is that the people are enduring the curse of sin. And this is a warning for us. No matter how sweet, no matter how gratifying, no matter how logical, no matter how convenient sin might be in the moment of temptation, sin always leads to curse. In fact, since we have all sinned, we are all under the curse of sin. We all deserve the eternal curse of God. You say, what's the curse? The curse is the removal of the blessing. That's what hell is. Hell is an eternal, infinite curse. Hell is not the removal of God. God is present in hell in the sense that His wrath is present. Hell is a curse. Hell is the removal of God's blessedness. God is, uh, hell is a removal of God's goodness, mercy, and love. That's what the curse is. And that's what sin leads to. Sin leads to curse. And by the way, if you're a sinner and you're under that curse, your only hope is to look to Christ Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree what did christ do when he died on the cross he bore the wrath of the curse on behalf of sinners just like us sin deserves curse christ took that curse for us so just understand this if you choose to pursue sin sin will leave you cursed so too we find a second consequence of sin in verse 2 where we are reminded that sin will leave you forsaken. So sin will not only leave you cursed by God, it will also leave you forsaken. Now here the prophet continues to personify Jerusalem as this bereft widow. And notice how she is enduring the personal consequences of sin. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers, she has no one to comfort her. Sorrow has overtaken her. 
She's alone, weeping bitterly in the loneliness of the night. And when she looks to all the friends with whom she committed spiritual harlotry, guess where they are? They're gone. We're going to see this more in the rest of the chapter, but understand this. You can commit sins with all kinds of company, but when it comes time to bearing the consequences of sins, you'll do that alone if you don't have Christ. I think it's especially important for our young people, our kids and our teenagers to understand that. Sin might seem like the, the, the option that gives you the most friends and, and the most company, but understand that when it comes time to pay the price for those sins, you know where those friends will be? Gone. Gone. I remember one time when I was a kid, a bunch of my buddies convincing me it would be a good idea to see who could throw a rock through a, a, a light, a lamppost, and who could hit it first. Well, it seemed like a great game until I won and turned around and all my friends were gone. And the owner of that lamppost came out. I had lots of company in committing the sins. I didn't have a friend in the world when that guy came running out his back door after me. <laughs> it was just me. That's what sin does. It leaves you alone and forsaken. Now here, the, the lovers that this verse speaks of, uh, these are the, the nations and the false gods that Israel trusted in rather than trusting in God. They'd place their trust in them. When God said, look, you've been unfaithful to me, I'm going to discipline you. It will be easier for you if you just accept this discipline as from me. They said, we're not going to do that. They prayed to other gods. They sought help from foreign nations to avoid the discipline of the Lord. What did they do? They made their discipline more difficult. And when, they, and, and when that discipline came upon them, and they looked around at all those false gods and all those other nations that they thought that they could trust in, guess what? There's nobody to turn to. Israel had forsaken the God who is always faithful. And now guess what? They found themselves to be forsaken. That's what sin does, by the way. Sin always leaves you isolated in your misery. When you're battling sin... Let me rephrase that. When you're not battling sin, when you're letting sin win, there's never a strong sense of fellowship. There's never vibrant discipleship going on. Sin cuts you off from those things. Sin isolates you from that. And then in the bitterness and the blindness of your own sin, what do you do? You get isolated, you feel forsaken, and then who do you want to blame on that? You blame everybody else. Oh, why doesn't God give me the friends that I need, or, or boy, I sure wish you know, my church loved me more. Okay, that may be true, but couldn't it also be true that because you are in sin, that you have isolated yourself and you're now bearing the consequences of that? That's what happened to Judah here. She was alone in her sorrow and she was forsaken because of her idolatry. By the way, this is what we all deserve, isn't it? If to be cursed is to have God's blessing removed, then to be forsaken is to have God's fellowship removed. That's what sin deserves. We all deserve to be forsaken. 
And, and, and the truth of the matter is that we would all be forsaken were it not for Christ who was forsaken on our behalf. You remember Mark 15? Mark 15, 34. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cried out those words, you remember what they were? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken because we deserve to be forsaken. So what a gift it is that we have fellowship with God now through Christ Jesus. But also what a warning it is. If you're apart from Christ, then you are forsaken of God. If you are in Christ, but you're pursuing sin, guess what? That sin is going to hinder your fellowship with God. That's what sin does. Sin leaves you forsaken. So too, as we look to verse 3, we see that sin will also leave you afflicted. Afflicted. Now the Hebrew word here translated affliction, it's speaking of an inner turmoil, distraught, complete anguish. And really, it, verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, look at it with your own eyes and your own Bible right there for a minute. The beginning of verse 3 could be translated this way. Judah has gone into exile from affliction and hard servitude. Not because of, but from. Let me tell you what that's speaking of. It's speaking of the siege of the city. For 18 months, the city was surrounded. The people were starving to death. They were absolutely afflicted. The flow of food and water was cut off. And then they went from one affliction to an even worse affliction because from that affliction and hard servitude, where did she go? She went to exile. 18 months, siege followed by total defeat and destruction in exile. No wonder she felt afflicted. It says she dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The rest of the Lord, the Lord's Sabbath, she refused to keep the Sabbath. So what did the Lord do? Removed all rest from her. Sin carried her from one affliction into deeper affliction. That is what sin does. Sin never leads to rest and peace in your inner man. Understand this. Rest and peace in your inner man, it doesn't come from your circumstances and it certainly won't come from sin. That kind of rest comes only through faith, repentance, and obedience. Sin leads to affliction. Why do we experience this kind of inner turmoil? Why do we experience this kind of pain and suffering in this world? The answer is sin. Which, by the way, we can look at this consequence of sin and see how Christ bore even that for us, can't we? Remember Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4? Stricken, smitten, afflicted by God. Christ bore the affliction that we deserved for our sins on our behalf. So, sin will leave you cursed. Sin will leave you forsaken. Sin will leave you, leave you afflicted. Verse 4, 
Sin will leave you hardened. Sin will leave you hardened. It says that the roads to Zion mourn. And here the prophet uses the word Zion. It's still referring to Jerusalem, but it's highlighting the religious significance of Jerusalem. Zion was the hill in which the temple was. Zion was the place where, where Yahweh dwelt with the people in the temple. Zion was the, the center of godly religion in the entire world. People used to stream to Zion at the feast times to celebrate the feasts. The temple would be teeming with people. But now, none come. The gates, not the gates of the city, but the gates of the temple, desolate. All those gates, all those walls that protected the sanctity of the temple. You had the outer court of the Gentiles. You had the inner court where the women. You had, you had the, the inner inner court where the men were able to go. You had the holy place. You had the holy of holies. All separated. Not anymore. Just completely desecrated. Festivals, done. Daily worship at the temple, done. The leaders of worship, the priests, what are they doing? The groaning, the virgins who often would have sung and danced as a part of the worship, afflicted. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. They refused. They refused to obey the Lord and observe the word of the Lord for generations. Sure, they had their festivals. Sure, they had the temple, but they had lots of other gods as well. In fact, some of, you read through the Old Testament accounts, some of the festivals, some of the feasts that they were commanded to observe, they had completely forgotten about. Completely neglected them. So what did God do? He said, if you're going to neglect it, if you're going to rebel against it, I am going to take it away from you. He handed them over to their sin in a Romans chapter 1 kind of way. You want to neglect me? You want to neglect the true worship of me? Then I will take away the temple from you. And notice what the result was. It says, she herself suffers bitterly. That could be translated, she's bitter within herself. The result, at least at this point, we're going to see some forward progress the next time we're in Lamentations after this week. But at this point, the result is not repentance. The result is not faith. The result is not any type of contrition. It's bitterness. It's hardness. By the way, it's not until finally Jerusalem says the Lord was right to do all this that you start to see a change in the heart of Jerusalem, in the heart of the widow. At this point, what is it? It is bitter hardness. She, she did the crime. And now that it's time to do the time, she's not happy about it. She's not happy about it. She wants to blame everybody else. She's bitter. Friend, that's what sin will do to you. You want to be a bitter, hardened person who cannot receive truth from God, who is not malleable before God, who, who doesn't have a growing faith 
and that nobody wants to be around, let me tell you what you do. You keep pursuing sin. You keep letting yourself get harder and harder to the truth. And you'll end up bitter just like Jerusalem was. Sin always leaves you bitter and hardened towards God's truth. Along with that, in verse 5, we're reminded that sin will leave you defeated. It says, Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper. Look, Jerusalem tried to resist the discipline of the Lord. But the fact of the matter is, they did not have the power to withstand God's punishment. And neither do you. Neither do you. Notice what it says. Why did her foes become the head? Why did her enemies prosper? Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. You cannot run from the righteous hand of God. You can't do it. You can't skate by. Ultimately, sin ends in your defeat. You've got to understand that. You might be able to avoid some of the temporary consequences of sin in your life. But even those eventually will find you out. And even if somehow you never see the temporary consequences of your sin in this life, apart from Christ, you will be defeated and you will bear the eternal consequences of sin for all of eternity. In fact, look at the book of Revelation. In fact, let me just, real quickly, everybody asks me all the time, I want you to do a series through the book of Revelation. I'll tell you what I'll do. Right now, I'll do a series on the book of Revelation. Here's an expository series on the book of Revelation. Jesus comes back and we win. There's Revelation for you. I've done it, okay? Stop asking. But the we is only those who have submitted to Christ, you understand. Really, I guess an even better, I'm going to exposit Revelation again, except I'm going to do it better the second time. Christ comes back and He wins. He wins. You play this thing out to the end, and if you're toying with sin, you're playing with sin, you refuse to submit to Christ, in the end you lose. And let me tell you what, believer, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus and you keep toying with sin, guess what you, you lose? You may not lose in the final battle, but in your individual battles with sin, every time you give in to sin, you make it more powerful in your life. Every way, every time you give in to sin, Every way in which you make a provision for the flesh, you just make that temptation stronger for the next time. The more you give yourself to sin, the less power you have over it. Sin will leave you defeated. Don't play with it. Don't play with it. Similarly, verse 6 reminds us that sin will leave you vulnerable. Vulnerable. Verse 6, from the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Now here, majesty, it's referring to the, the earthly temporal significance of Jerusalem, specifically its religious prominence. What happened when the Babylonians destroyed the city? What happened to the temple? Destroyed. What happened to all that was in the temple? Well, if it was valuable, it was taken off. 
It was stolen. All those things that they found significance for themselves in rather than using to worship the Lord is all gone. The earthly glory of the temple completely left Jerusalem. By the way, the only reason that was possible was because before its earthly glory left, its heavenly glory left in Ezekiel chapter 9 when the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, departed. God said, I'm out of here. Israel didn't seem to care that much though because it still had an earthly significance. And so God said, you don't understand. So he just leveled the entire thing. Now, what are they going to do? They have no city, they have no temple, they have no significance. So the prophet describes the princes of Jerusalem, that's the leaders of Jerusalem, like deer with no pasture. In other words, it's, it's, almost, it's almost the opposite of the way the translation makes it seem. It's not necessarily deers who have no pasture, it's deers who have no cover. It's deers who are in the middle of a pasture rather than the woods in the middle of hunting season. They're utterly vulnerable, utterly defenseless. They fled without strength before the pursuers. This, by the way, probably refers to when Zedekiah, who was the, the, the king, tried to escape, tried to sneak out and sneak past the siege and leave all of his people behind. Guess what happened? Didn't work out. It really didn't work out because Zedekiah was captured just like that deer with no cover. He was captured. He watched his family killed before his eyes. and That was the last thing he saw before his captors plucked out his eyeballs. That's what the prophet's talking about here. And you know what Zedekiah could have done to stop it? Nothing. That's the point. Not as long as he was pursuing sin. He was completely vulnerable. Stripped of glory, unprotected from danger. Friend, that is what sin does to you. You may not recognize it, but sin leaves you completely vulnerable to all kinds of spiritual dangers in your life. Not only is there no true lasting glory in sin, but so too there is no protection, no spiritual protection in sin. I mean, go... Go back to our study of Ephesians and listen to those sermons on, uh, on the armor of God. What's that all about? It's all about spiritual protection. But if you reject the truth of the Lord and pursue sin, you are unprotected. Unprotected. Completely open to whatever Satan wants to do with you. You're vulnerable. And we find in verse 7 another consequence. And if you think that this is starting to pile on, just listen to it. You should have tried studying it all week. (laughs) Sin is bad. And look at verse 7. Sin will leave you ruined. Verse 7, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her afflictions and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. That's what made the pain even worse. It wasn't just that she fell. It was that she remembered all that she had before. In particular, all the things that she pursued in place of Yahweh. And what did God do with all those idols that she pursued? She took them away. Or he took them away. 
Friend, that's what happens. If you pursue idols of this world, if you pursue your sin as your God, at some point, it's all going to go away. You can pursue money as your God. But you won't take a dime of it with you when you die. Not to mention, you can't even guarantee that you can protect it in this life. The Lord could take away every dime from you in the very moment that He chooses to do so. You pursue human glory. If your deal is prominence, you want everybody to know how great and awesome you are, so you're pursuing prominence or power or whatever it is, guess what? That's even more fickle and fleeting than money. It'll be gone before you know it. When you pursue sin, eventually the carpet gets pulled out from underneath you and you are left completely ruined. It says, when her people fell into the hand of the foe, there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked her at her downfall. No matter where you think that sin is taking you, when you sinfully pursue the pride of this life, it always leads to ruin. Always. Additionally, verse 8, not only will sin leave you ruined, but sin will leave you defiled. It says that Jerusalem sinned grievously. Again, a literal translation of this would be Jerusalem's sin sinned. It's just the word sin twice. Jerusalem's sin sinned. I mean, they, they really sinned. I mean, this is high-handed sin. What made it so high-handed was the fact that Jerusalem had the truth. Well, what did they do with the truth? They rejected it. As a result, she became filthy, defiled, unclean before God. And not only was she unclean before God, but it said all who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. Not only is she open and exposed before the holiness of God, but her sin is open and exposed before the whole world to see. And then, not only is she defiled before God and the watching world, but it also says she herself groans and turns her face away. She is now coming to the realization, this is who I am. And it's disgusting. Sin will leave you defiled before God. Similarly, verse 9 reminds us that sin will leave you disgraced. And the language in this verse is so incredibly graphic that it is difficult to even convey to you in mixed company. It says her uncleanness was in her skirts. And the picture here is of a woman who allows her monthly uncleanness to saturate her clothes through for everyone to see. Why? She gives no thought to it. She didn't think anything of it. She took no thought of the future. She plunged herself into all of this sin despite God's warning with absolutely no thought of what the consequences would be. And what this does is it highlights the disgusting nature of sin 
but it also highlights our blindness to just how disgusting sin is. However disgusting you think sin is, just understand, you don't think it's disgusting enough. That's why the prophet would use such startling language here. She participated in the vilest sins with no regard for the consequences or shame in the moment for doing it. As a result, she was disgraced. All who honored her despised her, for they have seen... Uh, that's verse 8. Verse 9, she took no thought of the future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. By the way, you start to see her coming along here, don't you? She realized, there's nobody else to look to. I am totally disgraced and defiled. There's nowhere else I can turn. Lord, look at this situation that I'm in. And by the way, she was shocked. Was the Lord shocked? No. No. He had been warning of this the whole time. He knew that sin will lead you to be utterly disgraced. There's a real warning to this one, by the way. Here, here was the problem in Jerusalem. Her conscience was so dull that she let it go that long. That's what happened. She, she just defiled her conscience. The things that should have caused her shame in the moment to do it no longer caused her shame, which meant she rode that sin train all the way to the end of total disgrace. Friend, don't defile your conscience. Don't ignore sin in your life. Don't be dull to it. Sin is disgraceful and it will lead to disgrace. So too, verse 10 reminds us that sin will leave you unsanctified. Verse 10 says, The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. And here really, the precious things, again, it's talking particularly about the sanctified temple instruments and vessels. All those things that were part of the temple worship. All those things about the, 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 the worship of Israel that set them apart and made them a holy nation. What had happened? God allowed all of those things to be removed. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter the sanctuary. The temple, the sanctuary was set apart as holy. Now, it's defiled by the nations. What had happened? They were unsanctified. Unsanctified. The temple with all its instruments was set apart for worship. The people did not use it for worship. So now the Lord set it apart for destruction. So the scriptures tell us that without holiness, no one can see God. Understand this, sin does not lead to that holiness. And what's so amazing is not only were they now in this unsanctified position, they had been set apart in a special place, but now, at least temporarily, that had all been removed. But in addition to that, think about the ongoing consequences. Not only were they in an unsanctified position, but the Lord had cut them off from all the means of grace to make them holy. Sin cuts you off from grace It cuts you off from the grace that leads to holiness. And finally, in verse 11, we're reminded that sin will leave you starved. 
starved. All our people groan as they search for bread. Remember, there was an awful siege of the city. We'll read later in the book of Lamentations that they resorted to cannibalism. It says they trade their treasures for food. Their most expensive items that they had left, they were selling those items for morsels of bread to try and revive their strength. Because what good are all the treasures of this world if you starve to death? They cried out to the Lord because there was nothing left that they could do. So, Lord, look at me for I'm despised. They're starving to death. They have nothing. And this, by the way, it's a reminder, a sinful lifestyle can rob you of the very food that you need to survive. There are all kinds of sins that you can choose in this life that will lead to you starving. Or if you don't starve to death because there's so many fail-safes in our society today, you will suffer significantly from an economic standpoint. You know, 1 Thessalonians 3.10, man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I mean, think about how many sad souls that we see uh, begging for food, and in many cases, begging for food because they've chosen a sinful lifestyle. And they're now burying the consequences of it. Sin, a sinful lifestyle, may very well lead to you, be, lead to you being hungry. But even if your sin doesn't rob you of physical food, understand that a sinful lifestyle will rob you of spiritual food. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you want to be cut off from the truth of God that feeds your soul, then you just keep trucking in that sin. You see, whether it's physical or spiritual or both, sin will starve you to death. Friend, there's so many details here. We're going so fast. We're covering so much. Here's what I want you to take away. Don't mess with sin. Don't mess with sin. Don't be fooled by the lure of gratification or the promise of sin. It seems so good, doesn't it? In the moment, oh man, it feels so good. In that moment where you're tempted by those feelings, in that moment where you think that sin holds some kind of promise for you and can do something good for you, you run, grab your Bible, and you open up to Lamentations chapter 1, and you remind yourself of where sin will leave you. The consequences of sin are absolutely devastating. And our only hope to save us from these devastating consequences is to turn from sin and turn towards Christ. And if we want to continue to reap the blessings of a relationship with God rather than suffer the consequences of sin, we must diligently continue to pursue Christ. Friend, you must forsake sin and follow Christ or else this lament will one day be about you. And you don't want that. And if you've been delivered by Christ from the eternal consequences of sin, then, then you need to strive in faith 
dependent upon grace, never to go back to these devastating consequences again. It is only through Christ that we can be delivered from the eternal consequences of sin and protected from the temporal consequences of sin. Don't, even if it's one time, even if you say, I'll never do this again, just this one time, don't choose sin over Christ. We pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And what a sobering warning that you give us on the consequences of sin. Lord, we are so thankful that we have Christ as our covering. We have Christ who is able to save us from the eternal consequences of sin. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here today who don't know Christ in this way, who are still under the consequences of sin in their own life, Lord, I pray that, that Your Spirit would open their eyes. Lord, help them to see where sin is taking them so that they can repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. Lord, we pray that even in this very day, You would do this work of salvation for all who need it. Lord, we also pray for those of us who have been delivered from the consequences of sin in hell. Lord, give us the strength by Your Spirit to continue to battle sin because we know that there will still be bad consequences when we choose sin. So Lord, help us by grace through strengthening faith to choose Christ and His Word over sin and our lust. We pray all these things in His precious name. Amen.